We, um, we're looking at Hebrews chapter 4, 1 through 13, which is really a continuation of what we started before Thanksgiving in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. It's the second of five warnings in Hebrews, and these warnings are given to a group of people that live somewhere around Rome. And there's a group of Jewish people over there. There's basically three groups addressed in this letter. And remember, when this letter was read, it was not read, okay, we're going to read chapter 1 and talk about it, because they had no chapter. It was one continuous letter. We have chapter and verse to help us identify addresses to know where to go. But for them, it was one continuous letter from the beginning words to the ending words of Hebrews. And these groups of people would have heard it together. The Jewish people, it would have been read to people who were, who were maybe a part of that faith community there. And the first group that was addressed is a group who bought into Jesus in their minds and their hearts. They're, they're all in, but they are struggling because they've been ostracized from their community, their faith community, their Jewish roots. They don't participate in the uh, sacrificial system anymore. They don't participate in ritual worship anymore, the, the Jewish rituals of the temple. And so they have been kicked out of their faith community and they're being persecuted by the Romans. The second group has also left that faith community and said intellectually they bought into Jesus, but they haven't bought into Him with their hearts. It's only a, a profession thing. They left Judaism, but they didn't go to Christ. They knew about Christ, but they didn't go to Him. And that's why this warning is so important because He's warning them, giving them an example back from uh, Exodus chapter 16 and 17 and all through Exodus and Deuteronomy where the children of Israel left Egypt, but they never left it in their heart. They kept wanting to go back. When they would encounter difficulties, oh, if I had the meat pots, oh, if I had the bread that I had back there, oh, if we could only go back to Egypt, we would have been better off there. They kept saying that. So he's using, the writer's using that example to tell them, you're doing the same thing. And he says, today is the day, don't harden your heart. And that applies to the third group who they haven't left Judaism, but they're not bought into Christ intellectually or with their heart. So those three groups are addressed. And we looked at last week, we kind of summed up 3, 7 through 19. But it's really 3, 7, starting in verse uh, 7 of chapter 3, all the way through chapter 4, verse 13 is one warning. It's all together. And so we're still looking at this same idea of moving from drifting, the second warning back in chapter 2, which they warned about drifting from the message, to now drifting to disbelief. When your eyes go off Jesus. And their eyes were... And, and what, what I mean by that is they had received the message of Jesus, but they hadn't bought into it. They haven't believed it. And so what good does a message do to you? What good does God's Word do to you if you don't believe it? What good is the Gospel if you hear it? But see, a lot of people feel good about hearing the Gospel. I can't tell you how many guys I talked to over the last 25 years who I will tell them biblical truth about a situation they're dealing with and they're going, man, that's good. And then they go and do complete opposite of what we just got through talking about. 
because it feels good. And then they'll come back after blowing it and I'll tell them the truth again. Oh man, I need to hear that. And then go do the same thing again. Truth that is not applied isn't good. It, it does you no good. And that's what he's saying here. You people have received the truth. The Holy Spirit has revealed it to you, but you're not walking in it. And so you're in danger. And he says this is a serious thing. And so last week, we kind of summed up and looked at the, what he brought about in the first part is that God's Word is ageless in our authority. And he brings that because he's quoting from Psalm 95. He quotes Psalm 95 again today in chapter 4. So he keeps going back to that. And I'm going to tell you, when you see God continually bring up the same point, you might want to... That, in, the, in the Marine Corps, when we were going through flight school, and they'd go, might want to know this for the test. Can't, you know what I'm talking about. It's Marine Corps training. Okay, guys. This is important. They're saying it's going to be on the test. Well, can I tell you? This is going to be on the test. Because one day we're going to be standing before God and according to what He says today in today's text, we're going to be naked and exposed. And, and, and you can be a poser your whole life to everybody on earth, but when you stand before God, ain't no posing. He knows exactly who you are and His Word will cut you open like a surgeon ripping open a heart to do a heart transplant. And that's what he's talking about today. But his word is ageless and it's our authority. The second thing he says is that we need to pay attention. He's telling them you need to be careful, pay attention, and be accountable. And, and he's talking to them about being accountable to what other people around them who love God are saying. He's telling the believers, that first group, encourage, exhort those people that haven't yet crossed over the line. Let me just ask you a question. How many people in the last six months have you exhorted to look to Jesus who aren't looking to Jesus? How many people in your circle of friends do you see on a regular basis that you know that they don't have rest? You know that their hearts are searching for all the wrong things and you have a relationship with them and you blow right past them because you go, ah, this is not a good time. Can I just tell you, it's never a good time for them in their point of view. But it's always a good time for them in God's point of view if He has put you in their life. At some point, He's put you there to be a priest. And remember what a priest is. A priest is a bridge builder between man and God. God has given you rest so that you can function in the capacity of being a, a person that's going to be a bridge builder. And He says, exhort one another. So being accountable. And the third thing is, he said, was that our faith is proven ultimately by our loyalty and our actions. And he says, if you persevere, if you continue on in the faith, those are the things that show that you really were part of the faith. So that was that first part. Now he gets into chapter 4. And we're going to read these 13 verses. It's a pretty good section, but... Everything that we're going to read today has to do with really one word. You know what it is? Rest. Do you ever want rest? Rest has many definitions and many applications for us. But the kind of rest he's talking about is the kind of rest that eats at your soul 
It's the kind of rest that drives you to do things that are really wrong a lot of times, to seek, uh, to get relief from the striving and the work that you do. And God's warning us in this text today, verses 1 through 13. I've kind of summarized it into three. There's lots of applications you can make, but the three that I want to focus on to help you kind of memorialize what I think God's saying in His Word today is that His rest is and has always been conditional on our belief or trust. His rest, which is ultimately our rest, hopefully, is and always has been conditional on our belief and trust. And that's straight out of the text. So you can say, well, no, we don't have to do anything. That's not true. We do something in response. We don't initiate. That's the thing. We don't initiate, but we have to respond. The second group of people didn't respond. They were never in. They only heard about it, and it made them feel good to hear about it. And that's what we're going to look at. The second thing is that His rest is and has always been His desire for us. Guys, do you know how what incredible love that God shows to us? You know, we think, and Blake, you and I have had these conversations, right? About our own lives. Sometimes we feel like God doesn't care about us. That's just absolutely a lie. From the enemy. He always cares. His rest for us is His greatest desire. And, and when we go through difficulties, whether it's in a marriage, whether it's in a, a work relationship, whether it's in a family relationship, whatever struggles we have is not because God doesn't love us. It's because sin came into the world and blew up the rest that we were supposed to have in the beginning. And we're going to look at that right out of the text. He says that. But His desire from the beginning has been for us to experience His rest. And the third thing is, His rest should be our greatest priority. should be our greatest priority. Whether you're a believer or unbeliever. Now, I'm going to be real... Uh, as you go through this, the main thrust of this message today is for people that are in that second and third category. I hope that there's nobody in this room that is in the second or third category. But I don't know. Posers are pretty good. Posers can make themselves... I know, I know a guy that posed for 30-something years as a pastor and wasn't a believer. He was in category two. 30-something years. And God moved him after 30 years into category 1 because he finally was able to receive his rest. And so as we look at this, let's read the text and then we're going to come back and kind of unpack each one of these. Hopefully we'll be able to get through this uh, in the next 20 minutes or so. Alright, starting in verse 1. Therefore, what's therefore? Everything we covered last week and the week before, talking about God's word being authoritative, you know, talking about uh, being exhorters. He's telling the warnings to these people, and he's saying your actions ultimately prove whether it's true or not, what you, whether you believe it or not. So then he says, therefore, 
while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered that rest as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He's quoting there from Psalm 95. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And he's quoting here, he's talking about from Genesis chapter 2. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Going back now to Psalm 95 again. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news fail to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. What he's saying there is Joshua did not give the children of Israel rest in Canaan because Canaan was simply a picture of eternal rest. But they didn't even get that because they didn't follow God. They didn't obey God. Verse 9, so there, so then, there remains a Sabbath rest for God, for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by that same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. May God bless his word. You know, I was on an airplane years ago, and I got bumped up to first class because I flew a lot, and... Um, I sat by a guy who had a watch that could have financed my ministry for the next year. <laughs> guy was about 70-something years old. And I'm not kidding you. He had more gold on his body than, than I, I, he had. He, this dude was loaded, man. And he was in the oil and petroleum business. And I tried to talk to him, but he didn't really want to talk. till the end of the flight, last 20 minutes of the flight, I saw an article that he was reading, and so I brought up that article and then created a conversation that led to us talking about Christ. And as I was talking to him, he said, Don, just pray for me, because I have one daughter. She hates me. I don't have any kind of relationship with her. And, and I said, I'm really sorry to hear that. I will pray for you, but let's get back to what I was talking about, about you and God. And he said, it's too late for me. He said, I've done too many bad things in my life. It's too late. 
And I said, it's never too late until you're in the box. Yes, it's too late. And he, he, he looked down in shame. There's going to be a day when each one of us stand before God naked and exposed. He felt exposed. I didn't even know what the man had done. But simply talking to him about that one day standing before God brought such awareness of what he had done in his life. But his mistake was he felt like he was unredeemable. So how did it go after that? He walked off the plane. But that was it? Just looked down? That was it. He looked down and, didn't, and, and he just said, it's too late for me. And he, he didn't respond. I don't know what happened after he walked off the plane. None of us do. But my point being is, the last thing I heard from his mouth was, it's too late for me. And he re-emphasized that. What this writer is doing to these people here is he's saying, some of you may think it's too late, but it's not. See, what the enemy does when we blow it, especially later in life, we blow it and he makes us feel like we're beyond help. Phil, I talked to one of your relatives who felt that way. You got me to call and talk to him. I've blown it so bad. We all know people who might feel like that. We may even feel that way. And what he's saying in this text is so encouraging because he's saying God's rest is available today. And on that airplane, that rest was available for that guy. But there was something that he didn't want. Maybe he didn't want to let go of the stuff he had done. I don't know why you wouldn't want to let it go to God. But God's rest has always been conditional and is conditional today on our belief. See, we have to believe that in spite of how bad we've been, He will forgive us. That is the ultimate rest. The rest He's talking about there is that rest. It's an eternal rest. He's, he's talking about the fact that we have to believe that no matter what we've done, He can forgive us. I'm going to tell you, you're looking at a murder. Not just in thought, indeed. You are looking at somebody who has blown it so bad that I should never be able to open up the Scriptures and talk to you about what God says in His Word. But He's forgiven me. And I rest in Him. People talk to me all the time. I don't know how you don't stress out more. You know, because I, I hopefully am resting in the fact that I can't control anything, but the God of all creation who can control everything has given me rest. And if He can give you rest from your eternal damnation, what's dealing with a boss who's a pain in the neck? What's dealing with a family member that continues to deride you and, and create problems for you? Your, your eternal destiny is the most important thing about you. How you deal with God. One day you can say, I'm not really that worried about that. I'm more concerned about this. And that's the way the children of Israel were. They kept going with their focus to the immediate temporary needs, not thinking about what God had done. That's why He keeps taking them back to that example. How many times in the wilderness did God have mercy on these people? 
over and over. It was like a gerbil on a wheel, man. They're just going through the same thing over and over. And even Moses finally loses his temper. He says, how long do we have to put up with you? That was part of Moses' problem. He's put himself on par with God. He wasn't on par with Him. He was just God's servant. He didn't, when he tried to act independently, that was where he messed up. The problem with these people is they did not see. He says, while the promise still stands. Guys, it's still standing right now. It's standing. Let me, let me just give you a few ideas about this word rest. That means no more self-effort to please God. Can I tell you something? You're not going to make God love you any more by how much you read your Bible, how much you go to church, how much you give to the church, how much you do for Him, He can't love you any more than He already does through Christ. Because He doesn't love you because of what you do. He loves you because of what Christ did. Period. End of story. The moment you can grasp that, hopefully you can cease trying to earn His favor and thinking that when things go bad in life, it's because you've ticked Him off. Doesn't mean he doesn't discipline you, but his love is not conditional on your actions. It's conditional on what he did. That's what he taught me that day in the airplane when that bird came through and hit me. Because I was living a terrible life. I didn't deserve the peace that I had in that cockpit that day. But because it's what Christ did and not what I do, I had rest. And he gave me that rest. So no more self-effort. The other thing is, rest frees us from the worry uh, that we have in life and to know that we're at peace with God. That overshadows everything. That's why Paul said, these are light and momentary afflictions. This is nothing compared to my soul being condemned for eternity. And I'm free from that. So let them beat me. What? Do you think I'm afraid to die? I'm not afraid to be beaten. I'm not afraid to be uh, persecuted. Because the worst thing that could happen to me is to have my soul condemned for eternity. And I'm assured I'm resting in that now. That's the second thing. The third thing is this settled, anchored feeling in Jesus Christ. That whenever life falls apart, the first place I go is to Jesus. It's not to my friends. It's not pick up the phone, hey Anders, I need to talk to you. That's important to do, but the first place I go is Jesus. Because I'm clinging to Him before I cling to anything else. It's the only thing I can cling to. And then the fourth thing is I'm just secure in His care. I know that God ultimately wants the best for me. And what that looks like is different. Has anybody in here ever had major surgery? Alright. Did it feel good when they cut on you? No. And in the same way when God... I know you have, Chuck. Yeah. So when they cut you open and they do heart work on you, that is not fun. It's a painful process. I watched it with my daughter, Rachel. Multiple times. It was a painful process recovery process but without that she was destined to die it's a rest that only God can give listen listen this over in Revelation 14 verse 13 
Listen to what John wrote about in Revelation 14, verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Guys, do you realize that if you're His, when you, you don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear God's judgment. I mean, it, it's a beautiful thing to not have to fear that. See, Israel turned from Egypt, but their eyes kept going back there. And I think people today do the same thing. They turn away from their struggle or their, their sin, whatever it is, but they never turn to Jesus. They keep trying to work their way into God's favor to make up for what they did in their life. You can't do it. There's only one that can do that. Jesus. And He did that. And that's what He's saying in verse 1 and 2. He, got it. he said it did not benefit them to hear this message. Why? Because they didn't have the faith that went along with it. They didn't really trust. But it's interesting where He goes in verses 3 through 10. He's telling them there's still time. God's sovereign. And He's giving you time. And as He, as he says in verse uh, 7, He appoints a certain day. That word there, appoints, means there's a limit. You need to take action. Today's the day. Don't put it off. That's what He's telling them. And in verse 8, when He talks about Canaan, and He's talking about Joshua, uh, He's saying that Canaan was only a picture of the true spiritual rest. The promised land wasn't a chunk of land over in the Middle East. The true promised land is what we're going to experience with God when we leave this place. That was merely a picture. And in verse 9, he says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. You know who he's talking about there? The people of God are the Jews. That's who he's speaking to here. He's speaking about the people of God in the sense of he's addressing them. God chose you. And if you go back to Romans chapter 11, verse 15, he says that some of you are going to believe. So today's that day. It's no good to hear the gospel unless you believe it. That's what he's trying to tell them. It's no good to have the truth. And I think back to Jesus in Matthew 7, and he says, he talks about a foolish builder and a wise builder. The, what's the difference between those two builders? The wise builder hears the word and does what? And acts on it. But the foolish builder just hears the word. That's the difference. That's what Shema means an action that follows. You hear and it produces an action in you. God's rest began after creation. Do you know that? If you go back to Genesis chapter 2 that we read, uh, he quotes there from 1 and 2, that in the garden when God made man, He created everything, then He makes man. Then it says what? He rested. Why? Because man was there in relationship with God the way He was supposed to be. And there was one condition. You know what it was? What? Obedience. It was obedience, but what does obedience show? What is what have we just studied the last two weeks? Obedience always shows belief. And what did Adam and Eve do? They didn't obey, which means they didn't believe. 
See, our rest has always been conditional. It's tied to belief. It started, and so the whole message of the Bible, you know, if you really want to talk to your friends about the Bible and say, do you know the whole message of the Bible is not about rules and regulations, it's about God wanting His people to experience rest. That's the whole story of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, He wants His people to experience rest. And you know, people go, God, you don't like that guy on the plane. I'm just so bad. Do you know what 1 Timothy 1.15 says? Paul, addressing Timothy, says, I'm the chief of sinners. I killed Christians. How bad can you be? But he came for people like me, Timothy. Over in uh, Romans 5, 6, and 8, he says, he doesn't say, well, when everybody cleaned up their act and everybody got right with God, then I came and died for them. That's not what he says. What he says is, while we were yet sinners, rebellious, disobedient, I came for them and died for them. And then Matthew 9. You know, we, we, we went through Matthew. We spent two and a half years studying the book of Matthew written by a guy who was a traitor to his own people, corrupt, greedy. How much did he clean up before Jesus said, follow me? I think he was sitting at the table still doing it. He was still <laughs> cheating people. And Jesus said, hey, come follow me. He, and what did it take for him to stand up, guys? He had to believe that Jesus would forgive him. You see, I think that's what we struggle with so often that when we blow it, that God can't forgive us. He, he can. And He wants people to know that. Do you understand that if the people in the world knew that was the message, how many people would respond to it? Instead, you know what they hear? You're a faggot. You're a homosexual. You're a lesbian. God hates people like you. No, He came for people like that. That's what it says over in Matthew. Jesus said, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. Gosh, why are we not promoting that message out there? Why is that not being shouted from the rooftops? Because when I talk to people who hear that, 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 that guy I talked to in Houston, he, he heard that message and he goes, wow, I never thought about it like that. Yeah, David? I was just going to say, again, we're all sick. <laughs> yeah, we are all sick. But he came for the worst. He came for us when we're sick. Do you know when you're sick and needy, you're like the publican who said, Lord, I can't even look at you. And Jesus said, that man, that man, not the one who said, Lord, thank you that I ain't like these people. It was the one who couldn't even look up. Here's, here's the thing. I was talking to Brad yesterday on the radio about it. That I went to see this movie about Mr. Rogers last week with my wife and Tom Hanks. It's a great movie, by the way. Great movie. And here's the reason why it's a great movie. Not because of the directing, not because of the acting, because of the message. And there was a scene in the movie where... Um, Fred Rogers told a guy who was messed up. This guy was messed up. He was messed up because his father left him like a lot of people in our country. His father left him. 
His mother died. His life was full of pain. And here he is. He's, his, his life is a mess because he was angry. Anger drove him, which drives most people. And this anger drove him and he looked at Fred Rogers and he said, I'm a broken man. And Fred Rogers says, I don't see a broken man. I see somebody who cares about this and that. In other words, I think it's okay for us to look at ourselves as broken because the young man was finally being humble. But we should never look at other people and tell them how broken they are. We should tell them what God wants to do with them. And, and so, in a sense, there's an element of the largest church in the country out in Texas that I think that we miss out on in other churches. I don't agree with theology that goes out of that church there. But what I do agree is that I think far too often when we encounter people, we don't respond like Jesus. We're not tender. We're not uplifting. We're not telling people that there's hope for them. We are supposed to be people who promote hope. And so what he's telling them is today is that day. Don't let this day go by. Let belief be real for you today. Not just something you hear. And that's what he's saying in 11-13 through when he says, let us strive. You know the word strive is not work. It doesn't mean to do physical labor there. What it means is, it means to be diligent. Earnest. So it's more of an attitude of wanting it and desiring it. And so he's saying, let us have this desire to enter that rest. Let it be urgent. We're all going to be naked and exposed one day. The masks are going to be off. And we ought to be wanting this not only for ourselves, but for other people. And he goes on and he says, God's Word is alive and powerful. When God says something, guys, it's not optional. It's it's, it's not trivial. This is is the most important thing we can be concerned with, is rest for ourselves and for others. The Word in verse 13 down there, where He says, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes. That word means face-to-face in the Greek. And it actually is used in another sense too of an opponent seizing his opponent by the neck. And so one day we're all going to be face-to-face with God. And His Word, His Word here is not talking about a word of comfort. His word here is the same word in Revelation 1.16, in Revelation 2.16, in Revelation 19.15 and 21. His word that comes out of His mouth, the sword, is judgment. That's what He's talking about. So, are you resting? Do you care about other people's rest? That's what we're supposed to be about. Am I resting and trusting in Him because it's impossible to rest without faith and trust? Do I believe that God can redeem me no matter what I've done? Or how I've rebelled? He can. That's why He came. Is God's rest my greatest priority for me and for others? See, the believers, for us as believers, if you're a believer, we should be concerned about other people's rest. 
So much so that when we talk to somebody and we sense that they are not in that rest, we ought to at least say, God, give me an opportunity here to share something with them, to talk to them. Not, you know, how's your day going? Oh, it's awful. I'm sorry to hear that. Hey, I'll be back in just a second. And then go walk away. Put my headphones on. I go into my world. I got too much stuff to do, too busy to do. And then you're going to stand naked and exposed as his child one day, and he's going to say, you know what? I put you in front of this guy. Why didn't you talk to him? I gave you this opportunity. You received rest. Why don't you want other people to have it? That's what we're supposed to be about. Do I have an urgency? Guys, listen. His rest is a great thing. And I pray that as you go into Christmas and you go into this season of celebrating His peace on earth, that you would understand that His peace on earth doesn't mean a fat bank account. doesn't mean four cars in every driveway. You notice I said four. Because most people here have two cars in every driveway. His rest doesn't mean those things. His rest means that you're eternally secure and that you can trust that He's all-powerful to take care of anything you need. The question is, do I believe Him? Do I believe Him? Let's pray.